Turn in your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 9. <clears throat> Salt is good. Amen. Uh, some people, different people, people like uh, different foods. Some people like the sweets. I kind of am on the salty side of things. I like salty foods. Salt is good. And of course, salt has many benefits that we are aware of. We know that we need salt. And the benefits of salt have been known literally for millennia amongst mankind. In fact, there, you know, the, that phrase, oh, if a man is worth his weight in salt, there are periods of history where men would be paid their wages in salt because it was so valuable and so necessary for society. Some of the benefits that have been known historically, even the ancients understood the value of salt not only as a flavoring agent to flavor food, but also as a preservative. Since bacteria cannot survive in a high salt-concentrated environment, it would preserve food from going bad, prevent that bacteria that causes food poisoning. It would prevent that from growing. And for similar reasons, salt could also be used to cleanse wounds. You know, it's interesting in our culture we have this phrase, you know, this, this whole phrase of rubbing salt in the wound, and we use that to speak of someone who's making like a bad situation worse. Right, like, oh man, it, you know, it was it was bad enough losing the game, but watching them host the trophy, the championship trophy, that just rubbed salt in the wound. It just made a bad situation worse, and we kind of use that phrase. But salt in the wound is actually a good thing. Salt it can uh, it can sting, right? And that's where that phrase comes from. Salt in the wound, it just kind of stings. It's it's abrasive in there. We don't like that. But salt in a wound can be a useful thing. It can force out bacteria and promote a healing environment within the wound. And in fact, our medical industry today uses saline solution, which is literally just sterilized salt water to help cleanse wounds and promote a healing environment in the body. Salt is good. It's incredible about how much our bodies need salt. Salt helps our bodies function as God intended. Your body needs salt for the nervous system to function properly. It helps muscles to contract and relax, which is why when there are salt deficiencies in some individuals, there, are, there can be seizures that take place. That's a malfunctioning of the nervous and muscular systems. Not long ago, I was listening to a podcast, and of course, you can always trust everything you hear on a podcast, Right? Well, this, this particular podcast, there's a medical doctor explaining how many of his patients with migraines, many of them had significant improvement in their symptoms simply by consuming more salt. There was a salt deficiency. Well, of course, I'm not offering that as medical advice for anyone here. It's only to illustrate how the importance of salt in our body's lives. When we are deprived of salt, it can have significant adverse effects amongst, upon our bodies. Salt is good. And we recognize that just like any th good thing, too much of a good thing can be a bad thing, right? There can, there's salt toxicity that can be a problem. There's debate within the medical community about how all this comes together. How, how do you effectively measure the salt that an individual needs? But there is consensus that everyone does need salt, and salt has many benefits. Salt is good. Jesus himself is going to make that very statement. He's going to say salt is good within our text here today. And 
in light of all the ways that salt can be used and the benefits of salt, it's not surprising that Jesus uses it as an illustration, as a metaphor for some truths that He is going to bring for His followers. If you recall from last week, we've been moving through Mark chapter 9 where Jesus is giving ethical teaching to His disciples, those who choose to follow Jesus Christ. There are a certain set of expectations that Jesus has for His followers. You want to follow Me? You want to follow in My footsteps? You want to be My disciple, My learner, My apprentice? Well, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to model your life. This is what is expected. Last week we saw that we are not to hinder other disciples from the ministry that they have just because they may not be in our particular circles, but we're to serve them. We learned that we're to be serious about sin, about the, the, the danger of causing others to sin, and about the danger that sin represents within our own lives and be willing to practice a radical amputation for the sake of holiness. We're to be serious about sin. It is better to be inconvenienced than to suffer judgment for our sin. And as Mark concludes this section of Jesus' ethical teachings, he transitions into three sayings about salt, and that's where we're going to pick things up in Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, where we see that ethical discipleship is salty. Lost my place here. Here we are. Uh, Verse 49, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness... How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I realize that the concept of being salty today is generally viewed as a negative thing, right? We use this to speak of someone who is maybe abrasive, maybe they're being grumpy or snippy, or just, they just got a little bit of an edge to them, like, okay, that person's just being, they're just being a little salty today, Right? So we can use phrases like that. And of course, that's not how Jesus is using the concept of salt. Right? It's very different, very different concepts. We are to be salty, but it's a positive thing within our context. It's not a negative thing. It's not being about being grumpy with people. It's intended to have a positive connotation. Here Jesus gives us three statements about salt. And, and as I read this text, I really see three distinct teachings that they all have salt in common as the metaphor, as the illustration, but they're teaching three distinct things, three different concepts found in Jesus' words here. You know, sometimes as Jesus does His teaching, He gives us the, the benefit of kind of explaining His teaching and just teaching uh, why, what, what He means with what He says and, and what He's communicating. Well, Jesus doesn't do that here. He just gives us the teaching. He just gives us the metaphor, and then we're left to try to discern from the context what it is that He is seeking to communicate. And I found it interesting as I was studying this text that there are several scholars and commentators, as they're looking at this particular text, they're looking at this and saying, you know, this is one of the more difficult texts to interpret throughout the Gospel of Mark, simply because 
Jesus doesn't explain His teaching here. He leaves it in the realm of metaphor. And it does seem as though Jesus is using salt to mean different things. It's not as though salt has the exact same meaning and the exact same connotation with each of His statements here. And so consequently, because of the somewhat disjointed nature of the, of, of the teachings, some scholars believe that this may not have been a seamless flow of Jesus in His teaching, like He taught all of these things all at once at one time. So in fact, uh, if you look at the other synoptics in Matthew and in Luke, we find statements similar to this, but they're located in different places and they are broken up, where here Mark has brought them all together using salt as the main theme. But does that mean that these things are disconnected, are truly that disjointed? I do not believe so. I believe there is some, some commonality, some common theme throughout, found throughout this that links these concepts together, because Mark had a purpose in putting them together. And it's not just because, well, these are three teachings about salt, so I'll just lump them together. I think there's more going on than that. So we do have to ask the question, what does it mean for disciples to be salty, and again, in the positive connotation of the sense of being salty? We see the first thing that Jesus says is grammatically connected to what comes before. Verse 49 begins with the word, for. For everyone will be salted with fire. The previous section is, a, is about being serious about sin. Jesus has taught that it is better to cut off your hand or your foot or even gouge out your eye than to keep all of those things and to be judged for those sins. And then we get verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. How do we understand the relationship between these concepts? How do we bring these things together? And I debated with myself about how I should try to communicate some of the difficulties that are found with this verse. This verse does contain a mixed metaphor. There's the concept of salt. There's the concept of fire and being salted with fire. It's, a, it's an interesting concept. And again, Jesus leaves it unexplained. He doesn't say what He means by this. We do see grammatically that it does begin with that word for, which usually communicates a logical connection between what comes before to what comes after, with the second thing being a grounds for the first statements. And if that is the case here, it is, I would say it's not entirely clear. There's, there's some ambiguity with the text. One scholar argues that because the only connection to what comes before is fire and the only connection to what comes afterwards is salt, that this phrase should be interpreted entirely independently, completely disconnected from the surrounding context. And I'm not convinced that that's the best way to read that. I think the context is important. So, so let's begin with just establishing some things that, that we should know from the biblical context. First, let's begin with the Old Testament and the usage of salt within the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, salt was used with sacrifices. Sacrifices were salted with salt before being offered on the altar as a sacrifice. And so we have Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. It reads this, "'You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. 
with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Moses uses that phrase, the salt of the covenant, and that phrase shows up in a few other places throughout the Old Testament, the salt of the covenant. Salt was used in the sacred incense as well that was to be burned and symbolized the pure and holy prayers of the people ascending to heaven. So we have Exodus chapter 30, verse 35, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. So we see that salt was offered with sacrifices and incense to symbolize the same thing which is to say they were both purified through the use of salt. Salt was with the offerings, salt was with the incense. Both symbolized that sacrifices were to be offered in purity and holiness. We know that salt has that effect where it is used as a purifying and cleansing effect. And thus using it with the sacrifices, it was to symbolize that concept of purity and holiness. Both the sacrifices and the incense were both things that passed through the fire, and so it seems most likely that Jesus' listeners would have heard the phrase, everyone will be salted with fire, and their minds would have immediately been drawn back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament teaching about the importance of using salt with the sacrifices and salt with the incense that was to be burned. Therefore, Jesus likening our lives to that as a sacrifice before the Lord, and thus the concept of being salted with fire, that everyone will be salted or purified, will be cleansed, our, our bodies as a living sacrifice, if that language sounds familiar, rings a bell from Romans, Romans chapter 12. Our lives as a living sacrifice will be salted, they will be purified with fire. So I think the natural question from that would, that should arise is, does this mean that everyone passes through the fires of hell and that Jesus was just speaking of back in a couple of verses earlier? Is that what Jesus is talking about? I would say, no, I don't believe that is the case. First, uh, we do recognize that fire can be used to speak of eternal judgment like it does a verse earlier. They can also be used to speak of other things like hardship or persecutions or suffering or other various trials that we experience in life. And in light of Jesus' instructions that it is better to maim yourself than to enter that fire, it seems odd to suggest that because of that, rea that reality, everyone will be purified through the same fires of hell. That those two concepts don't make sense to me to bring them together. So rather, I think it is best to understand that Jesus is making a reference to the hardship that would be experienced by cutting something off and then expanding upon that idea to speak to encompass the many forms of hardship that is experienced by disciples. Thus, Jesus is teaching that the pathway of following Jesus will lead to difficulty for us in this life. Right? Following Jesus doesn't automatically make our lives better. There's some difficulty that will come in the form of the radical step of whatever it takes to kill sin in our lives. Right? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right? It's better to be inconvenienced than to keep that sin and to be judged for it. Following 
Jesus may lead to hardship within our lives. It may lead to inconvenience within our lives. It may lead to other forms of suffering. But everyone who seeks to follow Christ should not expect a life of ease, but rather everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be purified. Everyone will be cleansed. Everyone will be sanctified through various forms of hardship. We are refined through hardship. There are many passages of Scripture that correlate well with this concept. Thinking about ourselves as a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord, I think of Romans chapter 6, verses 13, or 11 through 13. So you must, which reads this, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. We're to consider the the different aspects of our physical bodies, our members, our our hands, our feet, our our eyes, our mouths, everything about us is to be instruments of righteousness for the Lord. Lord, glorify Yourself. May You work righteousness through my hands today, through my feet today, with my mouth and my tongue today, with my ears, with my eyes, with my mind. Be glorified through my body. In that passage in Romans 12 that I referenced already, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. James speaks of the purifying effect that trials can have within our lives. James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I think of these various passages that, that correlate with this concept. And I think of the, the previous passage about doing whatever it takes to, to kill sin in Mark chapter 9, including being willing to radically inconvenience ourselves. And then I think back even on, in, in chapter 8 when Jesus is giving other teaching on discipleship, and He says, if anyone would come after you, he must deny himself, and whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will find it. Therefore, we conclude that self-denial and hardship are to be expected for the believer But it is through that process, it is through that self-denial and through that hardship that God purifies us and preserves us. Yes, we go through hard things. It might be a form of persecution. It might be just consequences of living in a sin-cursed world. It might be the hardship that comes from self-denial and, and that this radical steps to kill sin. But we're refined 
through that. We're purified through that. The Lord sanctifies us through that. And so, yes, everyone will be salted with fire. We're going to, be, we're going to experience these hard things, but we're going to be salted through that. We're going to be refined through that. So I think of the song that we sing sometimes, that refiner's fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy, or whatever it takes. Even through hard things, I'm, I'm willing to go there, I'm willing to walk there, I'm willing to, to, to have hardship in my life if it means that I will be made holy through this, because I want to glorify my God. We are refined through hardship. And I think if each of us were to reflect back within our own lives, I think we would look back and see how the different hard things that the Lord has brought us through, that we have grown through that. Right? Just, just reflect about the different hard things that, that has come into your life and how the Lord has used that to refine us and to shape us and to conform us into the image of Christ. I'm confident that if I were to sit down and have conversations with you, and I have had conversations with you to this effect, many of you, But the hard things that we've experienced have served to refine us and to bring us closer to our Lord. And so that refining process is crucial for us because it is through that refining process that the Lord makes us holy and it gives us our distinct Christian saltiness. Right? The the Christian saltiness, the good kind of saltiness, again, in a positive way which is what we see in verse 50, where we see that we must retain our Christian distinctiveness. Jesus says in verse 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? This second saying of Jesus that salt is good, but the salt becomes unsalty, we could paraphrase, well, what good is it? How, how, how can you make it salty again? Well, you kind of can't, right? Once, once it's that way, it just is how it is. So it becomes useless. There's a Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, and there he makes another reference to this concept of unsalty salt, which is a bit of an odd concept. As we've discussed, salt acts as a preservative and a purifying agent, and Christians are to be pure, we're to be holy, we're to pursue that within our lives, and we have this opportunity, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. We're to have this purifying and preservation effect upon the world. But if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our distinctiveness, how are we to accomplish that concept of salt losing its saltiness is interesting because salt itself is a stable compound. It doesn't change. While that is true, the, the salt of the day that, that the people in Israel would have had access to it would have come from different places. There were salt deposits that would have been harvested from the earth. And there's also, of course, the Dead Sea, which had a very high concentration of salt. And as water would evaporate, there would be these salt deposits that would be left. And they would seek to try to refine that into salt because it's not just pure salt at that point. There's other minerals and such mixed in with it. And so they would try to refine it. But in the refining process, 
some of the salt could leave with the other elements that they were trying to remove. And so you could have salt and salt deposits that would have a stale or an alkaline taste. And thus we get the concept of unsalty salt. And in that case, it's useless. It's not good for anything. It doesn't have value anymore. It can't preserve what it's intended to preserve. It cannot flavor what it's intended to flavor. It cannot have the purifying effect it should have. And so it is cast out into the streets to be trampled. And that's exactly what Jesus says in another context. The salt is good for nothing. It is thrown out into the street. Just yesterday, uh, we threw away two containers of salt. As I was doing reading about salt and just kind of went down the rabbit hole a little bit on, the, on interesting details about salt and the different kinds of salt that are available and the different, different things that are available to us. Uh, we, in our, we started adopting and using this, uh, this pink Himalayan salt. I don't know if you guys have heard of that salt stuff. Uh, it's supposed to have additional minerals in it that are good for you, and so it's like, okay, this is a good way to get other minerals into your diet that, that you need, that are helpful for you. But as I was reading and studying, I came across some studies that were done examining 31 different brands of the pink salt and found that the majority of them had high levels of lead, mercury, cadmium, and aluminum that were above what are considered safe levels for consumption. And I don't know exactly what all brands that there were, and, and trying to research that can be a little bit difficult as well. How do you source salt? And so we decided, you know what, maybe it's just best for us to just throw this away. That's, we're just going to get rid of that. How is it that these elements are there? Well, it's because that salt is less refined. And so it does retain many good minerals, but because it's less refined, it also has some of the other negative elements in it as well. So salt can be contaminated. It can be mixed with harmful compounds that are hazardous to health. And if salt loses its salty distinctiveness, the things that make it good, and it, it no longer has those things, and if it's mixed with other things that are unhealthy, that are not good, what good is that salt actually? It is not good for anything. It is cast out. We live in a day and an age when many professing believers these days are doing anything and everything they can to blend in with the world. They've adopted the world's sexual ethic. They've adopted the world's system of understanding things like power, understanding and have adopted the world's way of manipulating and controlling other individuals. That's not the way believers are supposed to be. If we look like the world, and if there's no discernible difference between the way the world behaves and the way we behave as individuals who claim the name of Christ, who claim to be following after Jesus Christ, why would anyone within the world care about what we have to offer? Why would anyone want what we have if there's no discernible difference? We must retain our Christian distinctiveness if we are to have the salty effect upon the world that we are intended to have. Recently, there was a famous preacher who hosted a conference at his church, and the aim of the conference was to equip parents how to continue to love their children who were beginning to identify as 
various things. Uh, homosexual, trans, whatever else, a variety of things. And how to support and help these parents as they are trying to interact with their children. On the one hand, such a conference could be viewed as genuinely helpful, as I think many parents are pretty well equipped for those sorts of conversations. We don't think intentionally about how to have those conversations and often do not respond well to that sort of thing. But the troubling thing was is that that conference ended up blurring the lines of what God says is good and right about such things. And the speakers at that conference included gay married men. And there was an emphasis upon inclusion and affirmation. There was a lot of backlash over that, and this, this, this preacher, he, he took a whole Sunday to try to address the backlash, and I listened to his message, to ex- his explanation of what was going on, and as I listened to that talk, he spent the majority of the time arguing for the concept of affirmation. He did take two minutes to explain the biblical sexual ethic, and he actually remarkably got that part right, even in the midst of all of that. He actually said true things for that two-minute stretch, and then he went right back to almost in my perception of it, it almost seemed as though he was apologizing for holding to that ethic. As believers, it's important for us that we should recognize that we should never stop loving someone because of maybe a claimed sexual identity or a claimed identity and whatever else. That, that doesn't mean we stop loving someone. We do love, and we love unconditionally. But we also have to recognize that we can never affirm someone in their sin. We can never affirm anyone in their sin, whatever the sin may be, whether it's it's any form of sexual immorality or any other sin that exists, whether it's something extreme as murder or something less extreme, some kind of outburst of wrath or gossip or anything else, that's not loving. We do not affirm individuals in their sin. I don't bring any of that up to try to just put this guy on blast or anything of that nature, but he made national headlines through this. And it illustrates what happens when lines are blurred, when salt loses its saltiness. What does that man's church have to offer anyone? There's no gospel. If you take the gospel out and and you remove the truth of God's Word, you remove the salt, what benefit is there? Why, Why? What message is there to offer that the world also doesn't already offer? Losing our saltiness is harmful to the world. Of course, there are many other ways that we can lose our saltiness. It's not just that. That's a very relevant cultural example. But consider this, and this is, I, I came up with this interesting way to phrase this. Uh, salty Christians are unsalty Christians. A little oxymoronic, but there's two concepts of salty there, right? If, if we lose our, our temper, if we have an unholy edge, if we're generally abrasive within our speech, if, if we're not exhibiting the joy of the Lord within our lives, if we are salty in the negative sense, we fail to be salty in the biblical sense. Salty Christians 
are unsalty Christians. We cannot allow ourselves to fall into the different things of the world. We cannot allow ourselves to be pressured into saying the things that the world would want us to say or to do the things the world would want us to do, to look like the world wants us to look like or to to be what the world wants us to be. We cannot fall into that. And we cannot allow ourselves to, to, to look like the world and react like the world when there's different things that come up and the different times we're tempted to, to, to insist upon our own way or doing it. I mean, we just came from a section where the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're arguing about who's the greatest, who's, who's first, who has the preeminence. Well, what's more worldly than that? The whole concept of saltiness means that we're set apart. It means that we're different. It means that we're to be actually following Jesus and His examples for us. Not the systems of the world, but Jesus. We must maintain our Christian distinctiveness. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Finally, look at the rest of verse 50. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. We must remain in fellowship. Have salt in yourselves, as could also be translated, have salt among yourselves, or perhaps more paraphrastically, share salt with each other. Jesus, again, shifts the metaphor here, this time to speak of the concept of fellowship, to have salt in or among yourselves, refers to the idea of, of sharing meals with one another. We, we share salt through fellowship. That's how we have salt among one another. It's a corporate concept, not just an individualistic concept. And when we are sharing that, the salt of fellowship together, it should have that purifying and preserving effect upon our lives. And I think some of us could bear witness to that concept in our own lives. When we're in fellowship with other believers, we are sharpened and we're strengthened within our faith and within holiness. And when we distance ourselves from that fellowship and from the purifying and preserving work that that fellowship can have within our lives, we begin to fade. And dare I say, we even begin to lose our saltiness. But when we are in fellowship with fellow believers, we are sharpened and refined through the positive influence of other believers in Christ, and this has a wonderful effect upon our lives. So we must remain in fellowship with one another. Have salt among yourselves purify one another, help one another follow Jesus. And we know that this isn't always easy because here we are and, and sometimes, sometimes we get salty in the negative sense, right? We can be salty with one another in the negative way. The disciples were just arguing about which of them was the greatest. They're having a power struggle right there even within the disciple group right there. Sometimes believers can act in ways that are unbecoming. But if we are in fellowship with one another, and if we are having salt among ourselves, if we're interacting with one another in this way, we have the opportunity to lovingly challenge one another and say, hey, you know, should we really be talking like that? Is that really the appropriate way for us to respond to this situation? 
do you know what the Bible says about this, that, or the other thing? And then there's that phrase at the end, and to be at peace, which could be interpreted as the result of sharing in that salt, or could be translated as have, have salt among yourselves, that is to say, be at peace with each other. In either case, the peace and the salt are closely related when we are in fellowship with one another, we are refining one another, and we're helping one another follow Jesus. We have the same goals. We're pursuing the same end. We are at peace, pursuing peace among one another. So rather than arguing about who is the greatest, we should consider how we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we don't need to be contentious with one another, but we do need to help purify one another. Discipleship is about following Jesus and then helping others follow Jesus. And that can only happen when we are in fellowship with other believers. That refining work is happening amongst ourselves. And then we have the opportunity to have that positive, salty effect in the world around us as well. Last week, I prefaced the discussion on the ethical discipleship concept with a reminder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that I've said here today and last week as well, it's only possible for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ and have been given the Holy Spirit who enables us to live this kind of life. We don't, we don't earn our salvation with a, a living a certain, according to certain patterns of, of behavior. We don't earn our salvation in that way. But when we see what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and we have trusted in Him and Him alone for our salvation and recognizing that we have no means of saving ourselves, we aren't salty by ourselves in the positive sense. We know that we need Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross. And when we look upon what Christ has done for us and the, and the life that He promises to everyone who trusts in Him, there's only then that we can respond in faith and respond through the power of the Holy Spirit to live as Christ instructs us here. Such a life can be costly but it is incredibly rewarding and life-giving. So be salty in the positive sense. Recognize that, that God uses even our hard times to refine us. Be salty. Re retain your Christian distinctiveness. Don't, don't compromise your values for the sake of fitting in with the world. Don't allow the things of this world to, to make us grumpy or salty in the negative way, but be, be salty in that positive way. Because salty Christians are unsalty Christians. Let the joy of the Lord just pour out of your life. 
And be salty, remain in fellowship with one another, be at peace with one another as you are pursuing the Lord's work within your lives. Be salty Christians. Be salty Christians. Lord, I thank You so much for our time in Your Word today. I thank You for the challenges of this text. Lord, I pray that we would be faithful followers of Jesus Christ that we would be salty. Salt is good. May we be salty together. Thank you again, and I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.